You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 391, if it doesn't spark joy, chuck it away. Decluttering with Marie Kondo. There used to be a feature in every town and village. Where have all the eccentrics gone? And William Shakespeare, who's he? It's all coming up after Dixie Chicks and Wide Open Spaces.
Australia suffered something of a wobble in America back in 2003 when Natalie Maines said on stage in London, in fact, that they were ashamed that George Bush, then the president, was from their home state of Texas. And there was a big outcry on the American mm, media. Yes, slight wobble is a bit of an understatement, really. <laughs> but they bounced back and are still going strong. That was the title track from an album that reached number four in the USA, number 29 in the UK, the Dixie Chicks, back in 1998, and Wide Open Spaces. Mm, I like that. Mm. It's funny, they're not really my sort of country, no. but I do like that a lot. Mm. I do too, yeah, I really like the Dixie Chicks. Um, welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 391. I'm Terence Stackham and hark, it's Juliet Harris. Hark the Herald Angel, Angel sings. sings. Yes, that is me, Molly Simpson's Nick Tow King. Hello. <laughs> George, back in the early 2000s, uh, the BBC yes. ran a sort of reality series, A Life of Grime, mm. which it, it followed the work of environmental health officers in the UK. And the unexpected star of the series turned out to be a Mr Trebus, a, a, a non-conforming man in his, in his 80s who lived in a house in Crouch End in London. Yes. Every room in his house in almost every inch of his garden was it was stuffed to capacity with what he believed was valuable collectibles but what most of the rest of us would call rubbish um <laughs> the series shows his, his conflicts and arguments with the local authority who tried with with great patience to persuade him to get rid of all this stuff now it'd be interesting to find out how the latest guru of tidying would have got on with mr trebus Marie Kondo was already quite well known in the States. Her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, has been... I, I, I think that's, a, that's a, a, a wild overstatement, frankly. But anyway, let's, sorry, let's, let's get to carry on. Yeah, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for, for actually years now, uh, several years. Um, but it, it has been, as is the current way, ever since she has appeared in a TV series on Netflix that she has become known worldwide. Now, I watched an episode this week in which she encouraged a young couple with two children to tidy up their home and her mm. intervention really did seem to help them but Jules would you welcome Marie Kondo into your place does she have it right less clutter means less stress well I can kind of see where she's mm. coming from the big Marie Kondo that uh, very entertained by a friend of mine and her partner at their story this week so uh, so mm. Marie Kondo's big thing is is when you're go- going through your house and decluttering and making your life less stressful the question that you need to ask yourself Terence which I now ask mm. myself about mm. everything in my life at the moment from uh, car journeys <laughs> to you know discarded bobble hats are does it spark joy mm. if it doesn't spark mm. joy don't keep it in your house. And my, my lovely friend explained this to her partner when they were away in Paris. And she explained the concept of does it spark joy to him. And he immediately, literally, that second, turned round and bought an Eiffel Tower shaped bottle of olive oil and <laughs> said, this will spark joy every time I cook. And uh, someone said, I, I misunderstood this. Is it not about less things? Which my friend replied, apparently all <laughs> 400 T-shirts also spark joy. So I think it's one of those questions which it's almost like when you do those quizzes in a magazine, you work out what... What, what spy, which spice girl you want to be, you know, what personality type you are, <laughs> and then work backwards as to how to answer the questions and get there. So, yeah, so presumably then you just go, yes, to, does it spark joy? I am a, a, a maximalist rather than a minimalist. And actually, mm. I went round to visit a friend of mine the other day and was very entertained by it. I mean, there was literally nothing in her house. I mean, I, I, I thought, has she just moved in? No, she lived mm. there for about, you know, sort of five or six years. Has she recently been burgled? No, she hasn't. Um, <laughs> if she had, 
said that she was extremely laid back about it, as was her visiting chap. Um, yeah, they, 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 you know, she seemed to be very happy with them. I think there was a sofa. I mean, it was it was one of those sort of things where there was not very much there at all. And, you know, fair play to them. But my flat is... I said, well, you've been to my flat, haven't you? She went, yes, there's a lot of things in your flat. I mean, you know, maybe just comparatively, it felt like there was. But, no, I, I am someone that is Homer Simpson in The Simpsons when they're getting him to clear out the basement. And they go, you've got so much old rubbish in here. Why have you kept all these TV guides? And he says, well, I don't, it's not 1985 now, but who knows what the future may bring. I, I apply a similar logic to my storing of things and I'm having new carpets fitted in my house in a couple of mm. a couple of days' time, actually. Mm. By the time we next speak, I'll have new... Who knows? By the time you're listening to this, maybe I'll have new carpets. Gosh. Who knows? And I know that's an exciting thought, but it's not exciting because I've got to clear out my uh, my desk drawers in order to move the desk out of the room. Um, I still have bank statements from 2008. Oh, Lord. I know, I know. Why, so, Jules, why? I need to be condoed, clearly. I you mean, do. I, I mean, having said that, yeah, then, but they, I got rid of them on the basis that they don't spark joy. I mean, none of my bank statements <laughs> spark any no, joy. No. Um, I, um, yeah, so there is something in it, I think, mm. in that, you know, there is something stressful about clutter. And I used to have a very untidy desk and a very untidy office, and I was taken into hand by a secretary. And actually, since tidying my office and my desk, I do feel like I have a clearer head. So maybe mm. there is something in it. Having said that, though... Mm. This idea of does it spark joy, that's a very high standard. Does everything need to spark joy? If I look to the screwdriver, it doesn't spark joy. But having said that, it's really good for putting shelves up. So how are we defining joy? You know, I, mm. I, find, it, I find that very... I find that a very nebulous concept. Um, it's it's very, um, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I think there's a middle ground to be got between not not being like dear old Mr. Trebus in Life of Grime, but <laughs> equally, you know, just having a bit of fun in life. I'm at that point where I know that hoarding is not helpful, but equally we live in such a stressful world at the moment. Do you know, it's really nice to open a wicker basket and find old issues of Select and Mojo in there that I've forgotten about and just sitting and having a read of them. That's really pleasant. Um, I don't know if it sparks joy, joy, but it's just really nice to have them around. They, they, I don't always remember them, so, so the joy is not constant, <laughs> but the joy is occasional, and that is enough for me. I think it would be interesting to go back to these households where, uh, in this case, Marie Kondo uh, tips up, say six months or a year later, and yeah. check to see if these people are still folding all their shirts and jeans in the Absolutely. Marie Kondo, in the Kondo space. Method, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like when they, when they used to have those programmes like Super Nanny on Channel 4, mm. you know, are the kids still well behaved in six months so yes. they back to throwing Tizer at walls again I, I don't it'd be interesting to see if they can keep it up I have fond memories of life of grime by the way because when I was at mm. university I was at university in the sort of early to mid 2000s mm. and we had one of those very early um, one of the first sort of electronic I still think of them as electronic video recorders you know the ones that are sort of we actually I think it was a little box like a TiVo or something oh, like yes. that you could record it it was one of those very basic uh, Early models. It belonged to one of our housemates. I remember we used to say that you could tell whose stuff was whose in the TiVo recorder because Viva showed a house because everyone had such specific tastes. One person got very into a documentary series called Super Volcano, I seem to remember. So every time there was Super Volcano in there, so oh yeah, so so and so take that. But one of our housemates was obsessed obsessed with life of grime and every time it would seem like every day. And it was on constantly. I think it might have been on one of those sort of um 
early not not satellite early freeview channels and literally like every time i turned the tolly on there'd be seven episodes of, of life of grime saved ready to watch it was my, it was it my, my own predilection <laughs> by the way at the time it was from french football that was on at half two in the morning on channel four whenever there were lots of episodes of that were found they were always it was my fault that they were cluttering up the thing but yeah i always i always thought it was quite ironic that something called life of grime about a hoarder used to regularly clutter up our tivo box at home and prevent people from prevent my angry flatmate from being able to tape emmerdale if i correctly i suppose of course it's up to everybody how they live in their own houses but mm. i do find it a bit stressful i'm sure amongst all my other disorders i'm sure i've got obsessive compulsive disorder because if i visit someone's house and there's stuff everywhere i have to really fight a, a kind of compulsion to tidy up for them in someone's kitchen or whatever but there is there's something i want to ask you Jules. that i am going to have to ask you uh something related to your bedroom so you know i'm afraid this is quite intrusive but i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> ask you there's one thing I, I want to know if you if you do this there's one thing that i find causes... i mean it always worries me when you mm. ask judge your standards of behaviour that always concerns me in multiple ways I found another grey hair in my fringe yesterday and I'm beginning to be doing this podcast with you and you carry on I know I can imagine um most of the women who have ever been in my life in whatever way end up with with grey hair and looking like you know very sort of sag shoulders and 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 looking like life is wearing them down so that's no surprise uh, that you feel that way um no i i there's something i find causes me more more stress when when i see this on tv um when you see someone's bedroom uh, someone who's supposed to be living in, in, in sort of luxurious surroundings, or if you visit someone who lives in a high-end lifestyle, like yourself. Mm. What, <laughs> what, <laughs> why Sorry, do, that was a rather, a rather jaded laugh, actually. Why do people do this? Why do people stack 20 cushions on their bed? They have the standard two or well, four pillows, two each side on a double bed. Oh, oh no, and, right. And then okay. 20 different size cushions on top of the pillows. What do they do with them at bedtime? Um, do they sleep on top of them, or do they take five minutes to chuck them in a corner? I, I find it a bizarre trait. Well, that, that, I, I do agree with that. Having said that, you've hmm. opened How many have you got? Of, oh. um, I've got three on each side. Oh, Lord. So I have six oh. pillows, and I have a large square one that goes in the middle that I prop myself up on if I wish to read, you know, uh, upcoming young snazzy person's magazines like The New Statesman. Um, yes. But um, I, there is a bit of an issue because the uh, the, the present Mrs. H, who makes occasional yeah. po- uh, podcast guest appearances, has one on each side. Oh, and I have no, that's not enough. Ca- I was given a second one when I went mm. round the other day, which I think was, is a sign that of a true acceptance, I think. Mm. But um, but yeah, it's there must be a middle. There must be a middle way. We need we need a Tony Blair. Th- third way of, of <laughs> I think maybe Marie Kondo could get onto that what what amount of what optimum amount of pillows sparks joy in your life Marie <laughs> well yes I, I I can see the the I'm really with you on the need for a third pillow for propping up for reading maybe you know looking at the phone or whatever but I there's there, there are these people and I've, I've seen it on television um where um and hotels sometimes as well so you've got the two well let's say three pillows but then there's this whole sort of um, extra strata, a layer of cushions, mm. silk I'm cushions. I'm enjoying the use of strata, by the way, in relation <laughs> to cushions. That's a, that's a big plus for me. I do yes it just, for that. It just seems so absolutely absurd because you surely can't sleep amongst them. So you've obviously got people have got to say, stack them on the floor or on a chair, and then I assume they put them all back the next morning. Purely for something. Strange, d- isn't it? d- same with uh, same with adults. Well, I mean, adults and soft toys on their beds is a whole oh, new Lord. realm of horror. Oh, I think so. It makes me think of um. 
My mum would, you see, my mum being a woman of a certain vintage, would refer to the the copious, uh, excessive use of scatter cushions and their relatives as uh, being a bit Katie Boyle. Yes, yes. Which is quite an insult from my mother's point of view. So, uh, so yeah, I do. I am a fan of cushions. My my mum made me a couple of patchwork cushions with animals on them that sit on my sofa, but they sit on my sofa. Oh, they don't sofa, need to sit exactly. on my bed. You've just given me a, a throwback memory. My, ver- uh, my first really proper uh, girlfriend, um, her mother had in her bedroom uh, these old uh, Victorian china dolls, and their eyes were designed to follow you as you walked in and, and maybe mm. walked around the room and that still terrifies me to this day it's rather, they're rather like in the same category, category as clowns to me china oh, yes, dolls absolutely. whose eyes follow you that's, oh, oh. That's, that's, that's not ideal is it, it makes me no. think about episode of the Simpsons where Bart is very little I think it's Lisa's first word and Homer makes him a bed <laughs> uh, in a misguided attempt to cheer him up because he knows he likes Krusty the Clown on TV and the bed is this huge horrible distorted wooden <laughs> clown face of Bart is reduced to sitting on the floor rocking saying can't sleep clown will eat me i wonder if your your, your sort of bed of hell would be one of those large oh. china dolls made in there made it can't sleep a doll will eat me i might well, you know to, to anybody looking to buy something for, mm. for terence for his birthday for christmas don't buy him a large china doll based bed please please don't um coming next can we still accommodate eccentrics in 2019. Uh, I mean, we're doing a good job of it on this podcast. Two of us here. Uh, so, yes, the best eccentrics next, right after this great track chosen by Juliet, it's Grizzly Bear. <laughs>
we've got a, a couple of those on this podcast, haven't we? Some weeks. Um, I I really like this band, mm. and I really like this album. I think it's a it's a really lovely album. It's one of those albums that I forget about, and then every so often I I I it comes on shuffle on my iPod, and I think, oh, that's really good. I really like that album. It's a it's got a lovely uh, a lovely sort of touch to it. I think. Um, I'm not great on pronouncing the name of this album, so Terence might need to to, to oh, help no, me on this. No, no. Oh, hang on, let's see. Okay, then let's see if I can do yeah. it. Um, so the band is called Briz- Grizzly Bear or Brizzly Gare, as I just tried to say. <laughs> um, you have to Google Grizzly Bear Band. Um, although the top three results are bit Grizzly Bear Band, Grizzly Bear Facts, and Grizzly Bear Cartoons. So maybe we could have a, a Grizzly Bear based <laughs> podcast one week. I would like that. Uh, they've all got rather bizarre uh, names as well, but although brilliantly one of them is actually called Christopher Bear. I know, isn't that remarkable? That is his real name, I think, as well, bizarrely. But anyway, we're going to call it uh, Vecatomest, I think. Oh, that's good enough for me, yeah. Vecatomest, and it came out in 2009. Um, There's some... I I, I was umming and arm over which one to pick, because I've got a feeling I might have picked them before. But if I haven't, I had certainly intend to. My favourite tune from that is Cheerleader, but I picked this because I I really like this, and it's called Two Weeks. Yeah, I, I, I suppose looking at it, it could be Vecatimist, but I would have oh, said possible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Vecatimist uh, sounds 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 good to me. No, the great band, nothing to dislike about that track whatsoever. Absolutely lovely, and like you, they're, they're, I kind of forget about them for a while. So I'm going to, I think, spend the week rediscovering Grizzly Bear when I'm driving around. They may be, I think, they're going to be my sort of Spotify pals. Mm-hmm, well, that would be interesting. And actually, as well, I speaking of sort of reminding yourself of things, mm. there is an album that's. Gone, uh, sorry, a book that's gone through various sort of editions that's called A Thousand and One Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. And mm. I keep meaning there was, was one of the word um, board people mm. did a blog where they did five a week for a year, I think. Oh. And it was really interesting mm. going through it sort of A to Z. And I, I keep meaning to do that. I keep meaning mm. to maybe I always start projects and never finish them, but I keep <laughs> meaning to, to sort of find the odd the old album and sort of listen to it and maybe review it. And there, this album was included in the 2011 edition of that book, apparently. Mm. Uh, and and very well deserved as well. A really good band. Um, it feels like an era is over. There used to be a time when almost every town or village had a series of people that we considered a little odd or unusual. They weren't a threat. They just seemed to live their lives mm. rather differently to the mainstream, rather like Mr. Trebus, who we were talking about a few minutes ago. And I don't think we see so many of these characters now. I, I, I don't know why this would be. Maybe better health care or different health care, some may say, where mm. on, you know, people are on prescription drugs now. Um, I don't know. But I'm thinking of people like Alan Bennett's Lady in the Van, the woman yes. who lived in a broken-down van on his driveway for 15 years. And I wonder how many people who lived in the London area in the 60s to 90s remember Stanley Green. Um, this was the man who used to walk up and down Oxford Street every single day in a rather shabby uh, coat and a cap and he used to carry this big banner that read less lust by less protein and um, less sitting and I can still remember, recall his his voice it was rather sort of doleful and he used to walk along and say buy my leaflet eat less protein buy my leaflet and it was about seven old pence to buy his leaflet as he patrolled wow. Oxford Street now, he died in 1993 but I fear and this is why I'm relating it to today. If he was alive and patrolling today, talking of eccentrics, he would either get arrested for breach of the peace or um, something like of that nature, or some yobs would would attack him. Uh, that, that that would be the problem in in today's world, I think, Jules. 
Well, it's it's interesting. This the that I think you've really hit on something there. With the idea of sort of eccentrics and. To, uh, to what extent are they eccentric and they're just a bit unusual to what extent they're unwell mm. and to what extent do they pose a danger to people around us or not and it is it is it's particularly interesting so uh, i think regular listeners know that i, I live in hastings mm. well I live st leonard's actually if you want to do the, mm. the hope actually kind of joke a bit a bit dafter and there's a part of hastings called the old town which mm. is uh weirdly it used to be the most work one of the most working parts of hastings which is that it's the kind of furthest point of hastings along to when hastings sort of stops and falls into the sea and it's <laughs> it's uh, where the fishing industry operates out of and, and we do have a reasonable sized fleet in hastings it's got smaller over the years and that proved to be one of the big flash points for the referendum a couple of years ago but it, it is as a result of which, because it, it's very oldie-worldie. Lots of the houses are very, very old. There's a, the, the present Mrs. H lives in a street where, where her is, hers is the only house which isn't listed, and yet it is still a very, 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 very old cottage. So, mm. so it's quite... Um, it's it's quite an oldie worldy kind of place and it used to be a natural home for eccentrics because of course it was the furthest part of hastings you didn't you had to drive down you have to walk or drive down that direction to get to it it's not necessarily on the way to anywhere else parts of it um it's not like it's it's the opposite direction to the london road Mm. so and i think that has a kind that had a kind of a bearing on it and the funny thing is is that now that part of Hastings is extremely desirable. Our, uh, I was going to say much loved, it depends mm. whether or not you mm. want to put in quotation marks around that and also <laughs> put quotation marks around local MP Amber Rudd um, lives in uh, in Hastings Old Town or as a rather jaundiced counter put it when I was at an election count once, I hear she has a house on Tackleway. I don't think she does now, I think she's moved elsewhere mm. but, um, but it's very interesting that it's become a very loveyish part of Hastings. It's where all of the people in their stripy tops go at weekends it's it's oh, it's true and and it's you know where uh in the crown which was a uh, much loved of broadsheet newspapers the the sort of which has become the kind of flashpoint the gentrification pub is there and it's where people are buying their second homes there's now a huge local argument about airbnbs and lots of oh, young yes. people young people particularly locally that, that work in bars and that don't have very highly paid employment increasingly are finding it hard to find economic places to to rent because the flat is then sold and turned into an airbnb and landlords in some cases freely admit that you know they can make 125 pounds a day so why would they rent mm. it to somebody for uh, 500 pounds a month mm. so so it's pretty it's pretty uh, boggling what's going on and uh, funnily enough it's now sort of disliked for that but funnily enough when i was growing up in hastings i remember the old town used to be dismissed in the same way rye's been on a similar journey which is our kind of sister town that's part of the parliamentary constituency in that they used to be seen as being very clicky towards outsiders so it was full of arty people and, and actually eccentrics and quite often not eccentrics in the sense oh you know he's ever so wacky and he's won the Turner Prize proper eccentrics as in why are you drinking in the pub when it's half two in the afternoon on a Tuesday you know kind of proper <laughs> and like you say eccentric behaviour that often seemed to border on you know, uh, to, to use a vulgar phrase, unwellness. You know, mm. it, it was not a. And actually, there's a dark side to eccentricity sometimes. And one person's kind of, oh, he's a jolly old character. Is somebody else's god? He's really rude and actually quite mm. racist. And there's a lot of that, particularly white male behaviour, used to go on in the old time, which is mm. why I always. 
I, I can see the arguments against gentrification, but it always makes me chuckle that the people that are always kind of, you know, I used to get dreadful abuse off an elderly man that, that that sat in a pub that I used to drink in because he didn't like the fact I swore, he didn't like the fact I spoke loudly, and once my my friend walked into an otherwise empty back bar and sat on a stool at the bar, and this chap walked out of the toilet and said, "Just sat in my seat." Oh. And so, I mean, and so you know, I, there are some people that go, oh, "Isn't he a character?" And you go, "Actually, he's not very no. nice. I like him." And so it's interesting that those people are now the people that are complaining about, "Oh, isn't it dreadful?" that our town's losing its character because these people are coming out from London. Part of me thinks, well, yeah, it is a bit because they are quite irritating, some of them. And the other half of me thinks, yeah, but you were very happy to exclude people from your little gang when, when you know, when the old town was kind of like, oh, yeah, you have to be an old town to really understand what it's like here. And it's like, well, you know, the people now are posher and have louder voices than the original kind of people that excluded everybody, in my view, anyway. I'm probably going to get in terrible trouble for making these comments. Mm. I suspect from some people, but you know there are aspects of the old town that i've always found and, and at lots of areas and you could say the same thing about soho i think or mm. places like that that were full of great characters mm. usually my dad would say that great characters are often linked to drink i think by mm. and large and and any kind of consumption of sort of you know without sounding like a crazy methodist without any, any kind of sort of consumption of drink or drugs starts off as jolly good fun and then ends up in something far darker and in a way i think eccentricity travels the same journey whether or not drink is involved, I think. I part of me feels sad that you go to that places in Soho that genuinely great places are being mm. driven out and mm. I don't want all of Britain to become a costa, you know. I don't want I don't want everywhere to have a pret and that's why places like Hastings Old Town are liked and likable because they don't have they have local shops and then they don't have chain shops and that's why it is irritating when people from London come down to places like Hastings and Margate, I think, is going on a similar journey. And people come in because they love the local character and they go, oh, yes, it would be much better, though, if we had something nice and something like that. And all of a sudden, even if they're not chain shops, everywhere's got those cafes that are painted in Battleship Grey that have wooden tables and do cold-pressed coffee. And all of a sudden, everywhere looks the same. And even if it's not a chain store kind of same, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a different, similar kind of same, if you see what I mean. It's so So part of me it's a difficult balance and i think the hastings old town is a good illustration of this part part of me thinks oh you know eccentricity is often just a shorthand for people that are tiresome and rude and and actually not very pleasant but part of me thinks i am liberal people should largely be able to do what they want if it isn't harming anybody else but there's some eccentricity which i think is just an excuse to forgive bad behavior but equally i do hope that we maintain a diverse society and i've seen in action what it's like when people move in because they love the character of a place and then try to turn it into what they love which is something without character usually i think you're absolutely right about the link of uh, the tiresome and rude eccentrics to uh, alcohol and particularly in Soho. I was just thinking when you well, said that, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Barnard, Barnard. It was, I well, just yeah. scribbled his name down on a post-it mm. note I've got in front of me. Yeah. Yes, uh, and all of that group that hung out at the Coach and Horses and the Colony Club, very amusing to sort of look back on years ahead. But if ever you came across those uh, people, they were usually very loud, boorish, and had unwelcome views uh, to the way you and I see life in terms Absolutely. of uh, other people. There's, there's one other person that I just wanted to mention before we moved hmm. on, who is 
uh, familiar to people who live in West London, but I just want to explain about it. He hmm. is one of the longest serving, I suppose, silly way to say, the longest serving eccentrics <laughs> um, uh, that I've ever heard of. Chicken George is his name. He's a familiar character to anyone who drives near Chiswick underneath the elevated hmm. section of the M4. I'm not sure if it's the original Chicken George, but I rather... Who, who was there in the 1980s. <laughs> it's just like Lord Buckethead. Well, it, it is. Different versions. It's like Son of Chicken George, because... Um, <laughs> what a great name for a novel, that is. <laughs> Son of Chicken George. He was there in the 1980s, but I rather think it must be the same man, because he still has the same little mini hut just off the roundabout on, on the elevated section of the M4 at Chiswick, and with some old sacking on, on the roof, uh, mm. and hand written signs outside his little tiny shack and he's been cycling around for years shouting at people and i'm amazed his little <laughs> that's his that's his that's his role in life i think that's his, that's his yeah raison d'etre yeah i'm amazed his little hut has been allowed to stay there for decades but essentially he's best known for sh- you know for shouting at people and um this was the experience uh, of my then girlfriend uh her daughter about 10 years ago she felt mm. so sorry for him uh, one winter's evening it was so cold that she she drove over there to his shack and took him some blankets, but she actually ran away when she heard him yelling at her from inside his tiny hut. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so, as you say, it's a, it's a kind of... Uh, there's two, two... Well, many ways of looking at it in the endearing characters, but also are they a threat and, and you know, is there a mental health issue or is it a, a mm. drug or alcohol? But, yeah, the eccentric man of, of Chiswick on his bike, cycling round with a little trailer behind it, Chicken George still there to this day. And what you, it's interesting what you said, actually, just before we move on, mm. there's, a, there's a group on Hastings, uh, there are various Facebook groups uh, to do with various parts of Hastings, which often... And descend into highly entertaining bun fights and recriminations. <laughs> I just hang out to watch it all go off, really. But there's a Hastings Old Town Appreciation Group, and there was a post in there um, about all the various nicknames of people in the Old Town, and most of them were sort of linked to their uh, to their occupation. But this one did make me laugh. So there was a there was a bloke called Liquid Len. Mm. who had been the landlord at the Albion, hence the nickname. There was an electric Ray, who was an electrician. <laughs> uh, there was a there was Italian Tony. There was Jack the Frame, who worked at the Framers. Ash the Splash, who was a painter and decorator. Uh, a pal of mine called Greasy Nick, who's a mechanic. I know Greasy Nick. And uh, Harry Bill, who was the face of the Jenny Lind, one of the pubs. But my favourite is someone that was nicknamed Rom the Tramp. Who you'd think, <laughs> you'd think, oh, you know, oh, he must be, he must be, you know, a fairly, uh, you know, a fairly down at heel character. The reason he was called Rom the Tramp is there's a trampoline enclosure on Hastings Seafront where it has various kiddies trampolines in it and you pay out an extortionate amount of money nowadays for your child to jump on a trampoline well um, Ron the Tramp owned the trampoline enclosure <laughs> oh, hence very why good. he was called Ron the Tramp so actually I quite like that as a sort of a nickname which you know it's got a got a plot twist in it uh, you've just reminded me of a bloke we used to try well, I used to work at Charisma Records in the 1970s oh. and there was this bloke we you're used an appropriate to... person to work there Terence I <laughs> <laughs> there was this bloke we used to have to try. He used to try and sneak in um, to, to, to steal stuff. He, he was called Mick the Pick because mm, he was one of Soho's yes. most well-known pickpockets, and uh, there wasn't a pub where he wouldn't be banned from for um, oh, fight, taking wallets and purses mm. from people. Mm. Coming next, a sizable number of schoolchildren in the UK say they've never heard of William Shakespeare. That's right after this splendid cover from the new album from Weezer.
Take my strong advice Just remember to always think twice She told my baby we danced to three Then she looked at me Then showed a photo of my baby cried His eyes were like mine Though we danced on the floor always is known as there and I've always rather liked Rivers Cuomo's voice but I've really found myself falling in love with their new album released this this week it's a gorgeous set of cover songs as diverse as Toto's Africa um, Aha's Take On Me uh, No Scrubs TLC's No Scrubs Black Sabbath's Paranoid um, and that great treatment of the Michael Jackson original from their new album Teal that was Weezer and Billie Jean I really like that, and mm. I think it's a it's a it's a sign of a great song that there are lots of versions that can be mm. done of it. There's still some good. Also, shout out for the excellent Ian Brown version from about ten or fifteen years ago, which I enjoyed very much. I was enjoying listening to his sort of greatest hits recently because he's got a new album out, so oh. I was listening to some of his older stuff. It's very good. I would recommend that as well. Um, just as a, just a serving suggestion, really, rather than a usurper, because mm. I did enjoy that Weezer version. Mm. It's a really good, really good album. It's really enjoyable to listen to. One of the most peculiar 
news stories of the week was a report that revealed that a, a major shoe retailer here in the UK, Clarks, is to train its staff mm. members to engage children in conversation. I despair. Just fund mm. schools properly, guys. It's <laughs> not hard. Jeez. And they've been called into this because we're at a point, apparently, where children turn up to school for the first time and the teachers find that these children are unable to form sentences and speak coherently, which, uh, as, as Jules alluded to there, is really profoundly depressing. Uh, you know, is the responsibility with the parents or uh, is it just a feature of how we live now? And um, life, and especially the lives and education of our young people, seems to... Um, most peculiar as there is another report of a survey conducted by the London Academy of Music and uh, Drama and Art Lambda, Lambda. yeah and this survey found that a third of British school children could not identify William Shakespeare as a playwright Mm -hmm. and these were not five year old uh, children, the survey was of school pupils aged between 11 and 18 years of age how can anyone, never mind 33% of all school children, get through school and not know who Shakespeare is, do they sit with headphones on listening to <laughs> Post Malone or Baby Shark during English uh, lessons? You, you, you've still got it, Terrence. Uh, you're I'm, still I'm, keeping I'm up. right on the pulse. Half of the children surveyed had never been to see a play. This seems absolutely extraordinary, Jules, but am I overreacting? Does it actually matter? Well, and that is a very key question, I think. So when I was, I mean, I find it strange, don't you? Because when I was at school, all we ever seemed to do was Shakespeare. I mean, you know, we we did three. When so I was at secondary school for five years, and I I just I was thinking about it for this topic. We did Midsummer Night's Dream in uh, in year seven. We did Twelfth Night in year eight. Um, I'm sure we did Macbeth for GCSE, and we might have done another one as well. And I did Antony and Cleopatra for A levels. So. So, so I'd done, a, a, you know, we did lots of Shakespeare at school. And funnily enough, I we have a curriculum that is incredibly unimaginative, I think, and has become more so in the last few years in an attempt to make it more like ye olden days. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, I find it really odd that Shakespeare isn't being taught in school because my experience was that it always constantly is. That and the Tudors and World War Two seem to be most of my kind of secondary school and, and sixth form career, really. So I do find that a bit strange. Um, the thing that you say about half the children not having been to see mm. a play, I do. I, I don't want to make everything political ever, but I do think there is a slight political dimension to this. And that when I was younger, I remember going on a lot of school trips, and some school trips you had mm. to pay to go on, but we'd go and see plays occasionally, and the tickets would be matinating, so the tickets would be reasonably cheap cheap so you could play pay you know you'd be paying for the bus and you'd be paying for you know for the, the theater ticket but actually we did go and see things because we went on school trips because there was funding mm. for school trips and nowadays there doesn't seem to be that i mean given that schools and there are increasing amount of reports of this in you know legitimate press given that people are having heads are having to write to their their, their parents saying you know can you bring some loo rolls in please we don't have money mm. given that you know there was a, a new circadian right next to piece in the new statesman recently where she went to various schools where literally the walls were falling down. I mean, obviously, school trips are not going to be their priority, and I completely understand that. So, so in a way, part of it stems from the fact that if you came from a family that was either not very well off or just not very, just not tuned into that sort of culture, just not interested in that sort of culture. I mean, I was brought up, I think, in a fairly cultural household, but we didn't, we didn't really go to the theatre. We didn't go to the London theatre because we didn't live in London. So, so, you know, and it wasn't something that we would do. So I don't necessarily think it's always a money thing, but 
usually in the past that gap might be filled by school and now it isn't so actually i i think that that there is a point to be made in terms of whether or not shakespeare is important i i'm always a little bit averse to and i suspect again i will probably get complaints but i'm a bit averse to the same old dead white guys being held up all the time as being part of our culture and heritage and how you know shakespeare is always held up as you know the great playwright and yeah you know his plays are quite good but they're also written they're also in you know a language of their own which is great but i feel like learning how to understand shakespeare is like cracking a code really i don't necessarily feel that it brings me a great deal else to my life and i'm not saying that everything has to be useful some things can be enjoyed culturally and you know in their own right but i've always found people that are into shakespeare seem to go hand in hand with a very specific kind of tedium sometimes there are some people that are lovely about it but there are some people that kind of you know oh the great bard there's a lot well, i rewatched the history boys recently which is one of my favorite films and there's a lovely bit towards the and uh, if you haven't seen the history boys and you want to fast forward for about two minutes but if you have seen it then you'll know that richard griffiths plays the, the film version plays the teacher in it who is sort of the uh, to go back to our earlier conversation the eccentric and there are things about him that are not very savory but he talks mm. to the the supply teacher towards the end and he said you know the teachers so why do you do all these kind of you know he gets the boys to do silly things like play, like film endings and things and he says oh then sort of mucking about and throwing literature around you know and sort of quoting poems he said i never wanted to raise people that grew up to talk about how much they love words and the joy and importance mm. of language and they're all very sort of fusty and self-satisfied about it and of course hector the teacher passes away and the rather terrible headmaster gives a speech uh in it gives the sort of at the memorial service gives a valedictory speech about hector and of course goes on about how great he was because he taught people the importance of words and a lifelong love of language and you know completely gets him wrong and doesn't understand it at all so i do i do find it a bit tedious sometimes and people bang on and on and on about shakespeare and the idea if you don't understand or get or like shakespeare because it is possible to get shakespeare without liking it very much either people don't think that's true i think it is um i do like shakespeare i can understand why one wouldn't so i do find it a little bit annoying when people hold up if you can't crack the code then somehow you are lesser of a person culturally i, I do think that a lot of importance is put on shakespeare just because he's one of the first people we know about i think in the same way as chaucer is and and you know i'm i'm a bit sick of and again this taps into the idea of the sort of why isn't the curriculum like what it was like in the 50s and it taps into the you know again the the, the challenges we're dealing with in britain at the moment around this sort of leave vote and what drove the vote to leave europe and this idea of this sort of pernicious nostalgia that's kind of infested everything and you know the idea that we have to look in the past all the time and I, I i think it's perfectly possible to celebrate people great people from the past while still wanting to look forward to the future and i think that shakespeare you know i, I you know i'm not saying we should let go of shakespeare or forget it but i do think that it is given an unpressed you know an unnecessary mm. amount of importance compared to other things on on the aspect of that of knowing things and qu mm. quoting great works my young niece and nephew are quite uh, very quick to put me right when i moan about how young people mm. don't know anything about anything today because they say why should they clutter up their minds as we we used to have to remember Re facts learn things by rote, yeah. uh, exactly whereas they say it's important that they know how to look for yes 
information and where to find it and i know my sister is a, a school business manager and i know at their school they you know part of their ethos part of their mission statement if you like is to actually teach young children where to look for things not to teach them the things to remember so absolutely yeah so um you know they're not memorizing information i can see the logic of that in the modern era but mm. i think we are denying young people, um, we, we are denying them the spark of joy and mm. um, understanding of language and the past and perspective. If they don't at least read and understand these dead white guys, uh, Shakespeare, Oscar Wilde, mm. P.G. Woodhouse, um, it, it, it does sadden me. But on the counter to that, to again, kind of agree mm. with your point a bit, um, we recorded this on Sunday, on Friday evening, I went to the theatre in London mm. um, and it was a, a, a middle brow thing it wasn't anything Shakespeare it was just a Agatha Christie thing witness for the prosecution and um, the audience I looked around because it's quite a small setting mm. and the I could see the whole was audience was in London sorry yeah, right, yes, yes it was at the old county hall on the south bank and oh, yeah. entirely uh, middle class middle class mm. white audience there wasn't a non white face to be seen so uh, you know there is there is a, a lot to what you say I think about the the, the, the sort of way that uh, culture is moved because of perhaps cuts or a lack of uh, interest in the in the in the education uh, criteria the last thing I wanted to say about this was that by the way two mm. percent of the children surveyed in this survey, 2% of the children surveyed thought Simon Cowell is a playwright. Uh, and I, I can't <laughs> I mean, find an I, excuse I mean, for I that. To, I'm going to be a little bit... A, maybe they thought they meant Simon Callow. That's quite possible. Mm. Also, you're not buying that, fine. No. Um, also, <laughs> also, OK, I mean, yeah. to be honest, I wasn't really, mm. but I thought I'd give it a go. Um, also, interesting what you say, Simon Cowell is a playwright, mm. you know, dismissing it. In a way, much to much to our annoyance at the X Factor culture, he sort of <laughs> is. He is, yes. Yeah. X Factor is about yeah. selling stories, yeah. isn't it? I'm doing this for my dead gran, and you know the the way that people are edited in the auditions. In a way, those things, all TV editing is telling a story, isn't it? So so maybe Simon Cowell is he's writing pl the play of people's dreams, man, and he's he's or, or rather quashing their dreams. One could argue that he is a playwright. Whether or not that's a good thing is, of course, another matter. You make a very, very good and profound point. Um, when you're not re-watching episodes of The Life of Grime on Betamax... <laughs> yes, um... which means that I unfortunately cannot, do not have enough space to tape, you know, the open university programme about laws <laughs> that I actually needed to watch. <laughs> where, where can we find you this coming week? Well, this coming week, I am going to... Uh, well, I'm, I'm not going as a sort of a worker, but I'm going mm. as a punter. Um, if you are in Lewis over the weekend mm. of uh, the 9th of February, you can perhaps see me at the Lewis Psychedelic Festival, which oh, I'm very lovely. much looking forward to going to all day and evening, various venues around the town. Um, really looking forward to seeing it. A friend of mine that, that runs a record shop said that he um, he had found it difficult last year because he went expecting psych, and there was a lot of prog, apparently, which he hadn't quite been primed for, but the light show was allegedly excellent what so, a great um, idea i love yeah, the sound of this uh, it's uh, a couple of it's a friend of mine and her partner that put that put it on mm. and uh, yeah i'm really looking for i did have a ticket one year and couldn't go because i wasn't well enough but uh, i'm really looking forward to hopefully making it over for at least a while this year the ticket it's long since sold out i think but mm. if you have already got a ticket then uh then then i hopefully see you there it was only about 20 quid i think for the all day ticket so i'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the bands and enjoying the visuals and generally sort of hanging out 
Thanks to you for listening. Yeah, particularly you, man. Mm. And thanks to executive producers Rona and Hilly. Mm. And talking of, uh, well, but sort of, kind of talking about psychedelic, uh, playing this out, a man who was the name to drop if you wanted to be seen as the cool kid in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm. But today, um, fair to say, something of a forgotten name, Jules. Yes, he is a bit. Mm. And uh, I... I had a, I got an old compilation, a sort of a mod compilation from one of the music magazines a few years ago, and it had various old things on it. And it had, it was I can't remember what the compilation was called, but it was it was really um, it was really unusual. And this was on it. It had some slightly out there sort of. It was sort of the edge of mod. Mm. It was kind of funny enough where where mod sort of became where it sort of became prog. Really, it was very sort of strange. It was a it was a, a, a endurably odd compilation and it had this on it and i really got into this and as a result of which started investigating his records more and um it was oh yes mojo presents heavy mod um mm. so an interesting little little album if you can dig that out and i just really like this also very amused by the fact that david axelrod shares his name with an american political strategist <laughs> yes. who was brought over at great expense for labor's 2015 election campaign but it did not notably deliver the result that labor wanted and uh, yes cost a lot of money and and you know there was not a lot of goodwill towards him at the end, I think. But the other David Axelrod, the one that in my circles it is still okay to like, um, is done, has done a few sort of interesting uh, albums. And he, he did two albums that are sort of paired together. Um, sort of one was the sequel to the to the other. Uh, the, his, had his, so, the, the first one was called Songs of Innocence, and then the second one was called Songs of Experience. And uh, this is from Songs of Innocence. And it's, it's got a great soundtrack quality to it, which... It falls into a lot of stalls. It's 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 like you say, sort of heavy mod. It's a bit of jazz. It's a bit psychedelic. I think it's a really interesting number. Um, so this is David Axelrod, and from Songs of Innocence from 1968. This is Holy Thursday.
You have been listening to a DACA Media Production.